electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Deirdre Bosa. Today, stocks rally to close out the month of January. The Nasdaq higher by nearly 2%, trying to avoid the worst January ever. Uh, coming as we await quarterly results from Alphabet, Amazon, Meta, Snap, AMD, and others this week. Then, more artists join Neil Young in calling for a boycott of Spotify. Despite the exodus, the stock does get an upgrade today, along with some other subscription-based companies. Plus, one Wall Street firm deciding to buy now. The analyst calling the bottom on a firm is with us this hour. We're going to start, though, with the market. Tech is surging at the end of what has been a tough month, and we are set to get a whole roster of catalysts this week out of earnings and some macro. Mike Santoli. Yeah, Carl, a market giving back just a little bit of what's been taken from some of the hardest hit areas uh, that does uh, kind of NASDAQ 100 type stocks qualify, but also, you know, the hyper growth pandemic stories. And a two year chart is kind of fun right now, right? It takes you to right to the precipice of the COVID crash. And here's some of those names, Snap, DocuSign, PayPal, uh, up almost exactly, you know, a similar amount over that span of time and still outperforming the S&P 500, even after making this huge round trip uh, higher. What's interesting is, you know, you look at Snap uh, or DocuSign, they trade right now at effectively the same price to sales ratios as they did two years ago. So no more expensive, but also uh, you wouldn't necessarily say cheap. It's just that they overshot on the upside. So the earnings that they're going to deliver probably going to give maybe some hints about what the longer term path is uh, fundamentally for these stocks, even if right now what we're seeing mostly, I think, is these reflex bounces from some of the most washed out areas of the market. This uh, this Boeing 10K we were just talking about in terms of raising more money does bring to mind IG spreads and and high yield spreads close to a one year high. I wonder how much that's on your radar at this point. Uh, for sure. Financial conditions are tightening, but from very loose levels. So they're not really kind of going across any trip wires that say, OK, now all of a sudden uh, conditions are tight or the market's being stingy about credit, but it's trending in that direction. And it's becoming a little bit at the margin, less supportive of broad equity valuations. You do wonder, though, how much, you know, the S&P falling 10, 11 percent and the average stock going down 15 percent over that time has mostly been telling you that story already. Mike, some bright spots last week, of course, were Microsoft and Apple earnings. Do you think that that could represent sort of a turn for or perhaps the bottom, especially as we have Amazon, Alphabet, uh, Meta all reporting this week? It, it can't hurt. I, I, I actually do believe it really after the declines we've seen in most of those stocks, uh, you've had some moderation in the valuations. Uh, but the problem is the market hasn't been directly rewarding uh, earnings beats in general very much. Um, the, the ones that miss are getting obliterated down two and a half percent relative to the market on the day that they miss. Uh, the ones that are beating are just getting a slight advantage over the market. So I wouldn't say it's enough to really propel the entire market higher. 
but it's something uh, that you can actually look and, and, and touch and feel and say, this actually uh, can help me value these stocks as opposed to just worrying uh, about the macro swings, at least right now till we get to the jobs report. All right, Mike Santoli, thank you. Now, one company reporting earnings this week, Spotify, several high-profile artists raising pressure on the company to take a stronger stand against misinformation on the platform. Specifically, they take issue with the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. Julia Borston has that for us. Hey, Julia. Well, John, Spotify is taking steps to address concerns that its popular Joe Rogan podcast is spreading dangerous COVID misinformation. Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, and Nails Lofgren, that's Bruce Springsteen's guitarist, they pulled their content from the platform. And popular podcaster Brene Brown says she won't release new episodes of her podcast on Spotify. This is growing backlash after, in late December, a coalition of scientists sent Spotify a letter raising concerns about misinformation leading claims that Rogan and his guests have made. Spotify CEO Daniel Lack responding over the weekend saying they don't want to be a content censor, but quote, we know we have a critical role to play in supporting creator expression while balancing it with the safety of our users. Announcing that Spotify is adding content advisories to podcasts that discuss COVID-19, directing listeners to a COVID-19 hub, publishing their platform rules and helping creators understand their accountability. Rogan posting a video on Instagram saying he supports Spotify adding content advisories. They're just conversations and I think that's also the appeal of the show. It's one of the things that makes it interesting. Um, So uh, I wanna thank Spotify for being so supportive during this time Uh, and I'm very sorry that this is happening to them and that they're taking so much heat from it. The efforts to address the controversy seem to be benefiting the stock, and a city upgrade to buy is also sending those shares surging now up nearly 12 percent. Cities saying they believe Spotify can improve its ad-supported monetization. That analyst will be joining us in just a minute. And speaking of advertising, there hasn't been any word of advertiser boycotts, something that we have seen with Facebook and YouTube as they dealt with other controversies. But we'll likely hear more about all of this when Spotify reports its earnings. That's coming up on Wednesday afternoon. And guys, we just have to remember how valuable Rogan is to the streamer. They are reportedly paying him about $100 million for their deal. And that's the key, isn't it, Julia? To to me, it seems like this isn't about censorship because podcasts, pure podcasts, were about distributing MP3 files with RSS feeds. You you can't really censor that. This is about money. This is about Spotify saying we want Joe Rogan exclusively and, uh, and, and some artists on the platform, musicians, saying we don't like that you're using your platform for this. It's interesting. Joe Rogan in the past said healthy young people and children don't need vaccines. That's one of the things that people are upset at him for. He also promoted a claim that lockdowns worsen the spread of infections. And he said he's going to make a couple of changes, right? He said he'll do more research before these uh, appearances of controversial guests and that he'll also have somebody to counter controversial guests more close to those things. It sounds like he's getting a little bit more traditional Perhaps, you know, he says, oh, I book all my own guests. These are just conversations. When you're getting paid $100 million, that's a harder case to make. Well, yes. No, he does sound like he's willing to make changes to 
avoid getting in trouble with his his boss, with Spotify, about the type of ideas and potentially dangerous misinformation he he has been putting out there. I mean, I think it's just worth noting that there were nearly 300 scientists that sent a letter to Spotify saying this is dangerous. This is going to have a real impact and it's going to continue to have a real impact on the country if you don't really prevent him um, from spreading this misinformation. So I think it's going to be interesting to see the balance here. Rogan seemed a little bit chastened in that video. Um, but you also have to raise this question, you know, Section 230. Section 230 prevents mm-hmm. platforms like Facebook technology companies from being liable for the content on their platform. But is this a different situation because Spotify is paying Rogan directly, so they're really more of a media company in this situation. Yeah, Julia, it's a great point that you bring up Section 230, sort of complicating that conversation even more here. And as you mentioned, the stock is up more than 10% today. So we're going to stick with this story and other streamers that have been hit hard since November. Netflix is up this morning, but it has lost nearly a third of its value year-to-date as subscriber growth slows. Our next guest upgrades both Netflix and Spot to Buys, calling them undervalued and highlighting other subscription names like Roku and Sirius. Joining us now, City Research's Jason Bazinet. Jason, good morning to you, and it's great to have you. Uh, I want to first start with this Rogan controversy uh, and the idea that it hasn't yet affected the share price. But is there a point or an artist like a Taylor Swift taking down her music that you think would affect Spotify user numbers and subscriber growth? I mean, the, the catalogs are so unbelievably diverse that I think it'd be difficult for any individual artist or even a handful of artists to sort of imp- impinge upon uh, any streaming provider's um, growth. So, no, we're not nervous about it. And you're not worried about that snowballing as well. I mean, this started with Neil Young and others have followed suit. And I guess, you know, my question about Taylor Swift, it could be any number of them. But is there a point where you think even advertisers would start to get concerned? You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, I guess there is a point, a breaking point when we see this, but as we've followed a lot of ad-based names over time, more often than not, these controversies blow over and they end up sort of not impacting the fundamentals. And I think the market is sort of saying the same thing today, that they expect most of this will blow over and is really untethered from, from something that could have impact the stock. Jason, uh, taking a broader view at these platforms, uh, it it seems like there's this thing happening where if you want to be uh, a mass market content platform, you need algorithms to do a lot of the sorting work for you. But also, if you want to win, then you need celebrities. You need big names on the platform. You need hit shows if you're a Netflix. And, And there seems to be some tension here, right? I'm thinking Dave Chappelle with Netflix, now Joe Rogan with Spotify, uh, maybe the need to have certain winners who control their own narrative can be at odds with the desire to be uh, hands-off overall. Do do you think that's an uh, an issue that investors need to factor in down the road? I'm not so sure. Um, You know, usually those tentpole franchises, whether it's films or an individual, end up helping gross additions. Uh, What ends up being far more dispositive for the equities is the churn rate. Uh, and we haven't really seen, you know, churn rates get impacted by any individual. So you could see a little bit of an impact on the gross additions. It could moderate sort of the growth, but really churn is far more important. And, and I would say at the valuations that a lot of these companies are trading at now, there isn't a lot of growth embedded in these names or growth expectations, I should say. Right. And, and that's, you know, prior to the Netflix print, which was difficult, as we all know, uh, there was a growing sense that trading on sub numbers, uh, user metrics, churn is uh, increasingly difficult and it should be more about margins and pricing, which is a different way of thinking about these names. Are you going that direction? 
A hundred percent. So, you know, one of the things that we we do is we look at the ARPU and the churn and the customer acquisition costs. And if you bought these stocks, let's say back in August, what you were underwriting if you bought the share was essentially a doubling of the subscriber base. You know, it had to double, otherwise you wouldn't you were going to lose money in the stock. It, today, where where Spotify and Netflix trade, uh, you need no growth in the sub base, um, and that and that's why I think you're seeing some of this reflexive bounce. Um, and that that's what that's what caused the upgrade. Um, I think these are pretty interesting entry points. Jason, I want to ask you about this idea that content spend is increasing every year and that it could be sustainable even at these high levels. What might turn or even halt that trend? You know, and I ask as the Wall Street Journal article today takes a look at some of these viral streaming hits that are lasting less time. They're more viral. And this sort of push for quality, does content spend stay at these high levels? Well, I think what you're asking is, is this a good business or not? And that's certainly a debate that's raging uh, on Wall Street. Are these good businesses? And, and the answer is, is we really don't know until we know how many players are going to be participating in these businesses. So if we live in a world where there's just two streaming video providers, you know, that's going to be a great business for the two that have, I, I use the phrase, cross the Rubicon from the linear business to streaming. Um, if we end up in a world where there's six, it's going to be more challenging. And so what the street is saying right now is go ahead and spend more money, get more subs, build a financial moat around your business. If we end up where a lot of other media firms end up crossing the Rubicon as well and stand up a real DTC business, then you might see a moderation in content spending, but not now in the narrative. It's too early. So how do you look at, uh, say, YouTube backing out of original content and its impact uh, perhaps positive on Netflix and then Apple and Amazon with their huge war chests, uh, the likelihood of them remaining in this game uh, with that spending long term. How do those players and, and of course, both of them are in music as well uh, affect, say, Netflix and Spotify? I would say more peripheral. I mean, if you look at the quantum of spend that's going on within the traditional media firms, they're all adjusting their spend to go more direct to consumers, spending more money on streaming. Those other big tech companies that you referred to, while they're large companies, if you look at the quantum of the spend on video in the DTC ecosystem, it's actually quite limited. Jason, thanks for your insights. We hope you'll join us again soon. Jason yeah, Bazinet from City. Thank you. Still to come, the CEO of Micron is on with us after the break. Tech Check is just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. 
<laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. now for a gut check on Citrix. Set to be taken private in a $16.5 billion acquisition. That's according to the journal Evergreen Coast Capital Corp and Vista Equity Partners buying the cloud computing firm for $104 a share looking to merge Citrix with another data management software company. Shares are sinking this morning on that news down nearly 4%, John. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, 2021 was a record year for semiconductors. Global chip sales jumping 25%, topping half a trillion dollars for the first time. Shortages continue to squeeze the industry, but are projected to boost revenue by 9% this year. Joining us now to talk about expectations for the industry, Micron Technology CEO, Sandre Marotra. Sandre, good to see you. Now, this is a, an interesting time. We, we talked about, just mentioned the shortages last year. Um, and at the same time, there's legislation that uh, could build capacity here in the U.S. Why is this moment important for chips? It is extremely important because it highlights the importance of semiconductors, John, in uh, all our economic growth, national security considerations. And if you look at, John, over the course of last 20 years, overseas governments have really invested and supported bringing semiconductor industry onshore in their countries. And U.S. government has not provided the support over the last 20 years. As a result, if you look at memory manufacturing, we only have 2% of global memory production here in the U.S. Of course, we need to reverse this trend. And this is where the efforts of President Biden, Secretary DeMondo, and bipartisan coalition on the Hill are extremely important in terms of securing long-term semiconductor memory leadership in innovation and manufacturing, and U.S. leadership in innovation and manufacturing. And here, Micron is very well positioned as the only U.S. company that manufactures semiconductor memory and storage. We announced, John, last year that we would be investing more than $150 billion over the course of the decade to address the growing need of memory and storage in the data economy today. So, John, we are well positioned to address this. We are very appreciative of the efforts and the recognition of semiconductors. Mm -hmm. We need to bring more manufacturing to the U.S., we need to drive U.S. semiconductor leadership and innovation. What this about is going that? to be important for jobs yeah. and for economic growth. Sanjay, uh, I believe TSMC and Samsung have talked about uh, building more manufacturing capacity in the U.S., certainly Intel lately with just that $20 billion uh, announcement in, in Ohio alone it could turn out to be more, has talked about it as well. How do you at Micron look at uh, the investment potentially in U.S. manufacturing? And are any of those other companies' uh, future capacity interesting to you? Uh, memory manufacturing is hard stuff. And Micron, over the 43-year history, has really driven, driven the tremendous uh, innovation and manufacturing expertise. Memory is at the leading edge of semiconductor memory. And within that, Micron is leading. I would like to point out here, Micron has manufacturing here in Manassas, Virginia. And we actually, even pre-pandemic, invested in expanding that clean room there to meet the growing needs for memory demand in automotive and industrial segments. In fact, that clean room, that fab expansion, completed construction in 2021. We began ramping that into production late in 2021, and we'll continue to ramp that through 2022. So point is, Mike, uh, John, 
that Micron has been investing over the course of last few years in continuing to increase its manufacturing capacity, of course, driving memory supply growth in line with the demand growth. We have made those investments here in Manassas, Virginia, as well as in our global footprint as well. So we have been proactive in driving prudent growth of our supply to meet the growing needs of our customers from data center to the intelligent edge to smart user devices. Hmm. So with all that in mind, Sanjay, I wonder, do you think that the, the supply industry supply crunch, as we knew it in the depths of 2021, uh, driven largely by COVID, is ending, is over, will be over soon? Where are you on that? No question that there are certain pockets of shortages that are certainly continuing in the industry. And we said in our last December earnings call that we expect that these will continue, these shortages will continue to ease throughout 2022 timeframe. And of course, industry has invested a lot. Micron has invested a lot in manufacturing capacity in terms of investing in technology transition capability to grow the supply, as I mentioned earlier. Um, Karl, this year, our CapEx will be at record levels. Last year was a record level too, and this year we are growing it by nearly 20% compared to last year. All of this going into driving leading edge technology transition to meet the growing needs, again, across a wide range of markets from data center to smartphones, uh, to of course, uh, PCs to consumer and industrial devices. What's mm -hmm. happening is that the trends of AI 5G, autonomous, they're all driving greater need for memory and storage. And this is why we think that for the rest of this decade, memory and storage will grow faster than the semiconductor industry on an average. Sanjay, it's Deirdre. Good morning. You're shutting down your Shanghai DRAM operations. Can you talk about why you made that decision and how you're viewing the Chinese chip landscape as a whole with this continued investment from Beijing? Is it becoming more of a competitive threat? Uh, so, Deidre, what I would tell you is that Micron is a global company. And of course, as a, a global powerhouse of a company, a large company, we, of course, make adjustments in our footprint of resources for development. These kind of restructurings are a common course of business. And in the Shanghai Design Center, while our DRAM a team is being de-emphasized in order to integrate it better and streamline our operations better with other parts of our global R&D centers. I would so, point out that the Shanghai R&D center continues to be an important area of development for our other products. So, and of course, Sanjay, China is an important market for us. Did, it didn't have anything to do with IP rights and talent being poached by Chinese chipmakers? Well, we have teams all across the world. And it, it, it is important for us to make sure that we are optimizing our R&D developments appropriately, of course, keeping in mind our IP protection, as well as making sure that we are bringing new technologies faster to the market. And that global footprint of R&D between Asia, between Europe, between U.S., multiple locations in U.S., has led us, Idra, to now have the most advanced technology in DRAM in high volume production ahead of anybody else. We call it our one alpha DRAM. And we are doing the same thing on the NAND side with our 176 layer technology. We have the best in class technology in high volume production ahead of others. So Sanjay, we are managing our business prudently, keeping yeah. long-term objectives in mind. Sanjay, we recently saw Peloton 
misjudged demand for its product. Uh, clearly, Peloton doesn't make chips. But uh, as I'm talking to you know, different leaders, different CEOs in the chip sector, I keep hearing about demand shifting, say, from lower end process technology to higher, about uh, you know, com- companies competing on a technological basis for you know, the future around 5G, around AI. Should investors be thinking about maybe this rising tide isn't going to lift all boats equally, but some players with certain differentiated technologies um, might succeed more than others? You know, certainly leading edge technology is going to be key in order to secure supply of products for all industry applications. Of course, you know, there will continue to be a demand for legacy technology as well. Uh, and Micron continues to build those as well. But just remember that the investments that happen in the industry are on the leading edge technology front. And this is why the efforts that U.S. is making with the CHIPS Act and the investment tax credits is critically important to make sure that CHIPS and investment tax credit and all of this funding gets across the finish line soon so that we can bring more leading edge technology with companies like Micron having the opportunity to bring a substantial portion of our future investments in leading edge technology onshore in manufacturing Mm. here in the U.S. So leading edge technology is going to be important. And here, Micron has done a nice job in continuing to build its portfolio, position our uh, product portfolio across a wide range of end market applications. And I do believe that companies like Micron are well positioned to benefit from leading edge technology and the trends of AI, 5G, all these data economy driven applications. Well, we're going to keep our eye on what Washington does with that, as I'm sure you will as well. Sanjay Marocha from Micron. Thank you. Thank you, John. Still to come this morning, why one Wall Street firm says buying a firm now may get you paid later. The analyst behind that call will join us in just a bit. We're back in a couple of minutes. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort. In just a bit, we're going to look at the ARC funds and the willingness of some investors to stick with Kathy Wood after a rough start to the year. First, though, let's get a news update with Rahel Solomon. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Carl. Good morning. And here's what's happening at this hour. Shares of L3 Harris are posting some of the biggest losses on the S&P 500. The aviation and defense company beat earnings estimates, but profit guidance was on the light side. And the company says that revenues will be impacted by supply chain issues for the first half of the year. 
Elevator maker Otis Worldwide also posting mixed results and giving guidance largely below forecast. But its stock has erased early losses and now up almost 2%, close to 2% there. Goldman Sachs has cut its GDP forecast for this year by more than half a percentage point to 3.2%. Goldman says that the slowdown will be abrupt this quarter as fiscal support fades and Omicron's impact is felt. And Angie teaming up with Walmart to provide help on home projects. Angie professionals will soon be available through nearly 4,000 Walmart stores and online nationwide. Angie shares are up 9% on this news. Deidre, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thanks so much. We're going to get to software now. The iShares software ETF sliding 20% in the past three months. We've talked a lot about it, but we are still seeing... Strong earnings from the likes of Microsoft, ServiceNow, Atlassian, and Qualtrics. The results boosting Morgan Stanley's view that the recent sell-off is disconnected from underlying fundamentals. Joining us now to discuss the sector, GGV Capital Managing Partner, Jeff Richards. Jeff, good morning. You have said a similar thing. You just need to know where to look for this value. And we're seeing the Nasdaq up nearly 1.8% today. You pointed out that some of the names you talked about a few weeks ago when you were on the show have already bounced, I guess, at least to the question, have we already seen a bottom? Where's there still opportunity? Great question, Deirdre. As you mentioned, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, we were sort of at the depths of, uh, of panic around software and cloud. And since then, we've seen Microsoft, we've seen Qualtrics, uh, a bunch of great earnings come out. Uh, cloud is strong and uh, and no reason to be shy about hopping in at some of these levels. I'm not a market timer. I can't call the bottom, but it sure feels like we saw a lot of names get very cheap, at least by historical standards. And particularly when you look at the growth rates going forward, uh, one of the things you know I'm bullish on is a lot of the recent IPOs have just incredible growth rates of north of 30, 40, 50, 60 percent. Those growth rates have been accelerating, even for companies like Microsoft and Amazon to accelerate growth in the cloud. So we're bullish, and if as long as you've got a three- to five-year outlook, uh, no reason not to be scooping up shares of names that you like. Mm. Jeff, um, you pointed out on Twitter uh, that Asana's founder, Dustin Moskovich, has been buying shares of his company. You called it impressive. You and I have talked offline about founder insider sales. How do you think that investors should look at this? You have, I'll give two examples on the other side, a Peloton and a Palantir, where you have seen insiders sell a whole lot of shares. Does it matter? Should it matter to investors? Well, Dustin's a little bit of a new case, right? He's, he's worth, I believe, over $20 billion, given he was one of the original co-founders of Facebook. But I think it's got to be a strong signal for employees. You know, when your founder uh, and CEO is, is doubling down, even at some of the higher levels and then purchasing more, I think he's purchased several hundred million dollars worth of stock over the last few months. It's a bullish signal. And uh, we've seen insiders at other companies in the last few months. I noted recently one of the directors at Smartsheet was buying shares. So it wouldn't shock me if we come out of this this January, February time period and we find out that a lot of hedge funds were scooping up shares, as well as insiders who were bullish on the long term prospects for these companies. And obviously, we saw Bill Ackman jump in big with Netflix uh, uh, last week. And, and, and who knows, maybe that'll be a signal that others were, were following as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the insider buying is, is we'll keep our eyes on it, Jeff. But I wonder, can you envision a longer term scenario where business is great, but valuations continue to get compressed by quantitative tightening, a process that's not going to ostensibly end this year or next year or the year after that? Yeah, great, great point, Carl. I mean, look, if, if I told you a few years ago we were going to come out of a quarter with record low unemployment, 3.9%, and over 6% GDP growth, and we were coming out of a pandemic, I think you'd think that was a pretty bullish signal for, for equities. However, obviously, we've got rising interest rates and inflation. Inflation's a big concern. You know, I, I was at a car dealership this weekend. They were marking up cars $15,000, $20,000, which is just, uh, just incredible to me. So hopefully we can solve for inflation. And, and then otherwise, I believe we've got a very strong economy ahead of us. 
And let's not forget small business, which is the lifeblood of America. 60% of Americans work for a small business. Uh, hopefully small business comes roaring back out of this pandemic. And software and technology companies that sell to small business could benefit in a big way. Companies like Square and Toast and Shopify and others. Jeff, uh, software is a really big category, and maybe investors can get some help from you in sort of filtering what's worth looking at. Growth is one thing. What about operational discipline? Um, what about ideas like product-led growth, where Atlassian uh, has a pretty unique model? What do you look at in these companies to determine who's got real strength going forward, besides the top-line uh, percentage growth? It's such a great question, John. And you mentioned product-led growth. What that does is reduce companies' costs to sell and market their products, right? Uh, you talk about Zendesk or Atlassian, some of these product-led growth companies, which means the product is getting sucked up into an organization and, and folks are buying more of it on their own without having to have a, a sales rep, for example, go visit. Uh, other examples I'd give would be the, the uh, low-code, no-code space with Monday, Smartsheet, Asana. We talked about those uh, earlier. And then, you know, the other metric that we love and folks in, in the investment community love is NRR, net revenue retention. If a company's got 120% net revenue retention, it means they essentially start the year knowing their current customer base is going to grow 20%. So that's how you're seeing these companies compound with 30, 40, 50, 60% growth rates. They're not only getting customers to renew at a higher level, they're also adding new book of business throughout the year. It's an incredible thing that the, the software industry uh, has that most other industries don't have with the subscription model. And you're seeing that even with companies like uh, Google, Microsoft, and AWS, uh, Amazon with AWS, right? The, the, as those businesses grow that are on those platforms, the net revenue retention on those platforms is over 100%. It's a beautiful thing and a reason to be bullish long-term on software. Yeah, you're providing sort of a playbook right here. Jeff, I wonder, uh, do you think that some of the software companies, or many of them, should have done more with their currency when their stock prices were at higher levels? Was there a missed opportunity in terms of M&A or raising capital or more capital? Well, you might have been on that Twitter thread last week, Deirdre. Uh, a lot of folks asking that question. I think one of the challenges was that the public currencies were high, but so were the private market valuations. And we haven't really seen private market valuations come down yet. They usually lag the public market by three to six months. Maybe we will. But man, there's more private equity and venture capital dollars at work, more dry powder than there ever has been, record amounts of venture capital invested last year. So it may take some time for those public companies, even if they are trying to be aggressive and go shopping, to find companies that are willing to sell when they've got ample capital available to them and valuations have been attractive on the, on the private side as well. Obviously, we saw the Citrix deal with, with Vista today. I don't think anybody would put Vista or uh, Citrix in the high-growth software category, but maybe it's a sign that we're going to start seeing some of these private equity firms scoop up companies that are now trading at 10 or 15 times forward sales that were at 25 or 30 uh, just 6 to 12 months ago, or at least try to. Jeff, it's great to have you. Thanks. We'll talk to you again soon. Jeff Richards of GGV. And coming up, we're going to chop it up on the Kathy Wood trade as a favorite pick. Tesla gets an upgrade. Credit Suisse goes from neutral to outperform, saying they're hard-pressed to find a company that checks all the boxes like Tesla does. $1,025 price target there. It's stock up about 9%. We're back to two.
Welcome back. Kathy Woods, ARK Innovation Fund, up 7% this morning, but having a tough start to the year, as you know. Our Dominic Chu is taking a look at how poor performance has led to some outflows. Hey, Dom. Uh, so, Carl, it hasn't just been the last few weeks. It's been the last several months here, ever since we saw the peak of this particular ETF, the ARKK, the ARK Innovation ETF, going all the way back to the early part of 2021. For many investors out there, it's about the idea of having to stomach what's been pretty much a 50% drawdown in terms of the overall value of this particular ETF from the peaks that we've seen all the way down to where we are right now. That has, again, led some traders and investors to talk about this notion that price and sentiment go hand in hand. As prices go lower, sentiment kind of drifts along with it. If you look at the fund flow so far just in January overall, it seems rocky, roller coaster, but on balance, the larger down days have really, really taken more of an influence over the fund flows than some of the up days that we've seen. To that end, this is the bar chart showing the flows just so far this year-to-date period, this month-to-date. If you look at the kind of contextual moves that we've seen in some of these fund flows on a one day basis on yesterday or the previous session, we've seen about an eighty six million dollar outflow on a one week basis. It's still negative, down about 50 million over the last month, down three hundred and seventy one million. And on a year to day basis, again, since the beginning of this month so far, roughly about two hundred and thirty four million to the downside. Now, I'm going to take all those away, Bo, and then focus on the one year number. They've still taken in close to $1.4 billion just in inflows into the fund during that time. If you look at it, it's going to come down to a lot of chatter with regard to the holdings that this fund has, because many of them have seen very large drawdowns. We've talked about Tesla a lot. Zoom Video, Teladoc, Roku and Coinbase. These are the five top holdings in this particular ETF. And we know from many of these growth oriented stocks, they've seen precipitous declines. Whether they find the bottom and rally here is going to be a big call. But a lot of folks are actually using this ARK ETF as a way to kind of play that basket rebound trade. And I would point this out, guys. And we know this. These five stocks make up roughly 33 percent, a third of the overall ETF. So as these stocks go, so goes the ARKK, guys. Uh, meanwhile, Dom, it, it does nothing to stop the ongoing conversation of what percentage of investors are underwater. Same conversation we have with Bitcoin and whether or not that number is large enough that would in, it would inhibit further buying down the road. So, so that's a great point. So, so a lot of the talk these days now is about whether or not folks had been buying in towards the highs that we saw back in February, March of last year. This is now a conversation where many of the traders and investors I talk to that actually traffic in this particular fund, they start to talk about this notion of, of dollar cost averaging, right? And this idea that if, as you buy your way down, you're trying to lower your cost basis, playing for that eventual bounce back. Now, I'm not sure what that says about sentiment there, but there is a contingent of folks out there who really believe that these stocks have a long-term transformational effect on the overall way that we love, live lives and, and the overall market. So they're turning to this as a way to kind of say, hey, you know what, on the way down, if we are kind of legging into it, averaging into those positions, that might pay off down the line. But I would say this, the, 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 the idea that those top five holdings I just showed you have been beaten up as much as they are with the, each of them, with the exception of Tesla, Deirdre, all of those stocks that I mentioned between Teladoc and Roku and all those have implied analyst upside target prices that are anywhere from 70 to 110 percent of their current values right now. So right. it remains to be seen whether those bounces can stick.
Yeah, it certainly depends on your investment horizon. We should note as well that the Nasdaq now up over 2%. A lot of those names that Dom highlighted, the high growth complex, rebounding hard today. As we had to break, check out the biggest laggers on the NDX to start the year. Moderna, Netflix, Peloton, some of the biggest losers. Tech Check is back in just a moment. Let's get a double header gut check. Coinbase and Shopify, both stocks jumping this morning as risk comes back on a bit. Also today, Coinbase announcing Shopify CEO Toby Lutke will join Coinbase's board of directors. Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong writing that with the addition of Lutke, the company hopes to unlock crypto's potential to increase economic freedom in the same way Shopify democratized online commerce. Both those stocks having a rough run lately, down 35 to 40 percent in the last three months, but each with only one sell rating on the street. We'll be right back. To affirm, shares are surging 17 percent on Friday after our next guest upgraded the fintech firm from neutral to buy. Bullish on valuation, the increased use of buy now, pay later over the holidays did cut the target from 110 down to 75 on more macro concerns. Joining us this morning is the analyst behind those calls, D.A. Davidson, senior research analyst Christopher Brendler. Chris, it's great to have you back. We actually had a couple of upgrades uh, last week, yours included. Some of them revolved around the idea that we might get some good GMV guidance. Is that your is that your view? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me. Um, so, yeah, it's obviously been a little bit of a rough quarter from a stock perspective, but that sort of, you know, belies the, the fundamental performance by now, pay later and affirms installment loan options really starting to gain traction with consumers, especially during the holiday season. This is, I think, the year that uh, last year was the year that BNPL came of age, consumers awareness, merchant adoption, both rising significantly. And Affirm has some really big partnerships that are ramping this quarter that we think will put uh, a lot of uh, upside potential to the GMV numbers, mostly Amazon and Shopify. Where are we in sort of evaluating uh, credit risk, uh, delinquency risk? Uh, Are those trends stabilizing to a point that you think is safe? Um, I wouldn't say stabilizing. I think we, as far as our biggest concern, as we watched the stock run up last fall and and stayed on the sidelines was credit risk and how it wasn't really being properly discounted in the valuation. But the valuation has improved dramatically and I think it's more um, you know, sort of taking into account the credit risk that exists in a firm's model. But we're still at you know, very, very good times for consumer credit, almost record lows in terms of delinquencies and losses. And it will get slowly normalized from here. But I don't think we're going to get some sort of really big spike, you know, absent a macro issue. So I think it's going to be a gradual normalization. And given the top line growth we expect for a firm, we don't see it uh, impacting numbers anytime soon. Hey, Christopher, let me ask you a broad question, and that is, does every fintech company need or should have a crypto strategy? You see sort of this broad range from Shopify CEO joining the Coinbase board, and then you have, you know, Klarna on the other end sort of telling John Ford, I think it was last week, that they didn't embrace Bitcoin. And it's looking bright at the moment as we see the you know, price of Bitcoin slump. So I wonder, does crypto factor or not factor into the way you value fintech companies? Um, I don't say it factors in, Deirdre, but it is, it is very important. I think that it's still early days and don't get focused on the price. You know, look at the adoption, look at the progress that we're making uh, with crypto adoption across companies, retailers, consumers. It, it's becoming a, a bigger part of our lives. The ten- transformation of the technology behind the blockchain and ability to do trustless transfer will only continue to grow um, as more and more developers and more and more 
uh, capital flows into the space and takes advantage of this technology. Uh, I don't think payments is really the, the first or, or best use case. I think we have some really strong payments rails out there. And if you're especially in a developed world with cards and other e-wallets, I think it's more uh, just the technology itself creates a lot of different possibilities and you want to be involved. For fintech companies, especially companies like Affirm, who has also talked about adding crypto, um, it's just a way of increasing consumer engagement, you know, sort of the ability to trade or or buy crypto like the Square or Cash App has or PayPal's wallets added. They're just trying to increase consumer engagement, get them to use that app on a daily basis. So I don't think it's a huge part of the strategy, hmm. but it really can be incremental. Christopher, uh, t- talking strategy here, do Affirm and Klarna, for example, have to become super apps in uh, and starting points for commerce in order to win long term, because I noticed they're working on that. And, and how much of their long term success actually depends on the product level data that they're getting about consumer preferences and their ability to uh, to then adjust their approaches based on that? That's a, that's a great question. And one I still don't think we know the answer to. Certainly the, the biggest, I think, uh, catalyst for Square's purchase or the Block's purchase of Afterpay is that consumer engagement and becoming more of a super app and getting people to use Cash App on a daily basis. For a company like Affirm, you know, I think they have a really, really strong value proposition. They're not really in that merchant-funded buy now, pay later space that's so crowded. They do a lot more consumer finance loans, and they're obviously the success they're having with Amazon and Target and Walmart and Shopify, you know, sort of points their differentiated model. I think it's more additive to them. But in terms of the valuation and the stock, for for me, Affirm's ability to transform into a super app and start getting consumer deposits and acting more like a a checking account for consumers is just icing on the cake. They have a tremendous opportunity in their core business. If they're able to transform into a super app, especially given the funding requirements of the buy now, pay later model, uh, that would be just a huge, I think, upside potential, not necessarily something they need to do, more of an upside case. Ah, it's going to be fascinating to see what, what they report. Uh, Chris, appreciate that very much uh, on the heels of your upgrade. Appreciate it. Meanwhile, NASDAQ uh, about to avoid its worst ever January. We're back after this. Today is the last trading day of January and the end of what's been a historically bad month for tech stocks and the NASDAQ. Here's a rewind. Tech continues to sell off in 2022. Tech sinking yet again. That's its worst January performance on record ever. Is more volatility ahead? Well, unless you think inflation is done and unless you think the Fed is done, it's hard to imagine that this is done. It's certainly been a rough couple of weeks and tech stocks have certainly taken a hit. Across the basket, the cloud industry and software holistically has just been hammered. You're just seeing brutal selling across semi-software, fintech. This is something that I think we're seeing exacerbated just by the anticipation of inflationary fears, Fed tightening. Tech investors not the only ones feeling the pain this week. It's been the worst start of the year for tech billionaires in recent history. The tech sell-off does rear its head. We're still trying to figure out, have people sold enough of the risky winners of 2021 and 2020? The question we all want to know. We'll see how they work it out. Any doubt this tape moves fast here. Uh, John Nasdaq's now up 8% from the January 24th low. Yeah, and D, now investors should know this can happen. The question is, will it continue to happen? Will it happen again, or is this pop the end of it? Yeah, and I mean, to think that last week with all the volatility, we ended almost where we began. What a month it has been, Carl, to start the year. Yeah, and we're going to get through AMD and Ford and Meta this week, along with the jobs number. 
You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.